guys can have a seat. If you're a note taker, our app's back up and running. I know we had some glitches with it in the last couple weeks. It's back up and running. The notes are all on the app if you have the app. Kind of a main idea to start with today is that the church is a needed voice in culture, but due to our failure to remain distinct, we've lost this. To be valued again in society, we will need to relearn how to think, speak, and act. So we talked about not being distinct last week. As we looked at the message last week, we talked about being the same as everyone else in culture, speaking the same way as everyone else does, posting on social media the same way everybody else does, not remaining distinct from the culture that we're in. And because of that, the church at large has lost its place in culture. And just imagine this. There was a time, many of you folks that have been around for a while remember this. This is decades and decades and decades ago. But there was a time when something would take place in society, something would take place in culture, and that the church, church leaders would be invited in to help figure out a solution. There used to be a prominent place where the church had a role in culture. And I think because we have failed to remain distinct or different than everyone else, We've lost that voice. And I think we have a needed voice. I, I think before we have, I, I would say, I know we have a necessary voice. That we can play a unique role. But before we get there, before we're allowed to do that, we have to return to being different, not just another voice in all the noise. So we're going to pick up in Acts 23, where we left off last week, starting in verse 12. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the app. You can just click on Bible, and it'll, it'll open up. You can join us there. There's one under your chair if you'd like a paper Bible. Verse 12 says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves to an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So we're picking up. We're at the end of the book of Acts. Lots has taken place. Jesus after the resurrection, has begun speaking to a group of people, about 120 people in an upper room in a gathering kind of like this. Jesus speaks to them, commissions them to be witnesses to the culture about him, to speak on his behalf, and then he ascends back to heaven in front of them. They get to watch him as he lifts back up to heaven, as he ascends back to his throne. So Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, commissions his church to be witnesses for him. Now, in order to do that, they're going to have to have some engagement with the culture around them. And now, in this context, right there when Jesus ascends, they're in Jerusalem. They're in a primarily Jewish context. They are primarily Jewish followers of Jesus that have begun to become what you and I would call today Christians. They end up engaging their culture. Tens of thousands of people come to faith. And because of it, there's a persecution against the church. So those who follow Jesus become persecuted. And it drives them out beyond Jerusalem into Judea, a neighboring country, into Samaria, some very hard places for the Jewish people, and then out to the ends of the world. And as they go out, their, their role or their, their place in the culture is to go out and take the message of Jesus or the message of gospel, the the message of the gospel, excuse me, the message that says that Jesus entered into human history to reconcile God and humanity, that Jesus came and lived the life you and I are called to live, but he did it without sin, he did it without fail, and he did so to reconcile God and humanity, and that God loves humanity, God loves the people on this planet, that he desires a relationship with them, and that we are to take that message out into a, need, a community in need. And so imagine 2,000 years later, that message is pushing out. 
And as we've seen that go throughout history, we've seen different eras where the church has been highly persecuted and in eras where the church has not been. And, and what we need to see is that right now on the planet, there are both. Here, we are not really persecuted. I know that sometimes we, we feel that way. Or we feel like Christianity is, in, is kind of a straw man that gets picked on a lot in culture. But let me just say this. If you're on the other side of the planet where Christians are being persecuted, tortured, and killed, just admittedly, we're not going through that, right? Like our persecution is, you know, that people will say, oh, you believe in something that we don't believe in, or that you can't have a voice in this particular venue, or whatever, name-calling, and just pushback. But nobody is trying to crucify us like they did hundreds of Christians in Egypt last year, right? I mean, we're in a different place. And so as the church pushes out, it encounters different things. It encounters different persecutions. And what we're seeing is there is a group of people that are pursuing Paul as Paul goes from town to town, city to city, country to country even. They're pursuing him and they're charging him with things. They're making accusations against him. And last week, as, we, as, Paul, become, as Paul gets arrested in the middle of this crowd for what they think is him starting a problem, we find that the group around him accusing him are seeking to put him to death. And that's what we see here. And we watched as the conversation last week between Paul and his accusers kind of reached that fever pitch to where even Paul is, is lobbing accusations and saying things and kind of dragged into the name calling with him until he just stops and says, you know what? God wouldn't have me talk like this. And he pulls back and says, you know what? I need to, I need to again, remember that God has called me to be different. And so he talks about how scripture calls him to speak and he pulls back and he begins to speak in a different way. And so now this is still happening. This is still engaging. And now there's this, there's this separation between the crowd of those who are accusing him. They're starting to disagree with one another. And Paul is trying to take a higher road, a, a better speech, a more Christ honoring, God honoring speech. And all that he says, he is trying to remember that he is accountable both to be without blame in front of one another, the society, the culture, and to be without blame before God. And as he does this, there is a group of people that conspire together to kill Paul. And it literally says they are not going to eat food until they kill Paul. Now, since Paul doesn't die in today's passage, I'm going to assume they begin eating again, right? And I was trying to look up, and I thought, well, what's uh, the only examples of hunger strikes that I can remember are some good ones. Like Gandhi went, I think 23 days, 24 days was the longest he went without food. And he got something accomplished, right? And this is really the, the antithesis of that. This is someone saying, hey, we're not going to eat again until we kill someone. Gandhi is looking for rights for other people. And so this is not that. This is purely wicked conspiring together to kill someone and saying really that we hope this happens before sundown. Like we really want to get this accomplished soon. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. I love that this, this conspiracy to kill someone is so common and so acceptable that they're willing to go tell the religious leadership. Like this isn't taboo at all, right? Like, hey, we have an idea right? We're going to kill this dude. What do you think? Like, we're not going to eat until we kill this guy. Are you in? That's how bad this is. The climate that they're in, and, and I, it's not, we have to imagine it's not that far off from where we are. 
Verse 15, now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him, meaning Paul, down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So there's this plot to murder Paul. And really, people are, are committed. I, I committed the level of, listen, we're going to not eat until we kill him. That's a, for me, that's a high level of commitment, right? And I just remember the last couple elections were so contentious. That a couple of years ago when Trump was elected, I have to imagine somewhere, somehow, there were conspiracies to plot to kill President Trump, right? I mean, can we just assume that, right? Ten years ago, I remember when Obama won. I remember it was highly contentious. And I remember my wife and I talking about the potential of someone killing the president and how, whether you agree or disagree with this president or the last president, how horrible that would be in our country, right? And just talking about, imagine as President Obama, the first black president ever to be elected, imagine if there was an attempt on his life or an actual assassination. We haven't seen one of those, uh, some of you in some of your lifetime, and in my lifetime it hasn't happened, right? And imagine the damage to the country, imagine the division to the country that would take place, no matter if you agree or disagree with this president, the last president, the one before, and in those three, I'm sure there's one you didn't like, right? Just imagine the damage to a country. When things get to that level, and I have to imagine that there had to be someone somewhere seriously considering stuff like this. There had, there's some crazy people in this country, right? And that with the, with the toxic conversation that goes on in our culture, I have to imagine someone somewhere had a real conversation with their friend like, hey, what do you think? Like, we could really, we could kill this person. And that's a scary thought. There's a lot of high volume noise right now. But if you actually think about the execution of a president, the assassination of a president, that's a scary thought that that would take place in our country. And it's taken place multiple times in our country. But we have just, I just, no matter how, how deeply you disagree with this president or the last or the one before, imagine how damaging that would be to our culture. And I have to believe someone somewhere has seriously considered this because it's at that kind of level today. Verse 16, it says, Now the son of Paul's sister, so Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, and he went and he entered the barracks and he told Paul. I just want you to back up. You don't have to turn there or scroll. I just want to put up five verses ago. Here's what happened. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him, meaning Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here's what happened. Paul got caught up in the drama of the culture, in the attack against him personally, the people literally physically attacking him. He gets caught up in it until he starts, he starts speaking back in the same way that they're speaking to him. He catches this as people ask him this question. He realizes that he is in front of a, a crowd of people and that he is not honoring Christ in his speech. He backs off. He quotes the Bible and says, listen, I'm out of line. The way I'm talking, I'm out of line. And he begins to back up. It's shortly after that that Jesus directly, like if you're in the Bible, if you have one of those red letter editions where it highlights Jesus' words in red, you'll see it's Jesus speaking to Paul and saying, listen, just like you, you've now spoken for me in Jerusalem, I'm going to take you all the way to Rome. And you're going to, now let's use that language from early in Acts, 
Paul is going to be a witness for Jesus even in Rome. So Paul backs up. So if you're a note taker, once Paul stops defending himself and refocuses on the gospel, Jesus calls him to speak on his behalf. Like Paul, regaining our voice and culture means being less about self and more about Jesus. Less temporal, more eternal. Like if in order for us to gain a place back at the table, back in the conversation, which I think we've lost because of things we've done, and when I say we, I don't necessarily mean us in this room, but probably us too. But decades of the church not being a helpful voice. And one step in reclaiming that is to make our message less about ourselves and more about the gospel, more about Jesus, right? Less things now and more things eternal, if you will. Less personal and more really selfless and outward focused. If we're going to regain any voice at all, we're going to have to rethink what we say and what we do. So reread verse 16 again. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he went, and he entered the barracks, and he told Paul. So here's what happens. Paul has now had this, this moment in his life where he catches himself, and we, we all get there, right? There is none of us here that don't find ourselves outside of what's glorifying to God, right? All the time. And Paul catches himself where he is just dragged into the lowest common denominator of the, of the culture in his own speech. He backs up. He literally repents in front of the crowd, he begins, to, he begins to speak differently, and it's shortly after that that Jesus says, listen, now, now that you've, you've seen how you have to live in front of others, now, now I can use you. Now I can use you here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to use you all the way to Rome. And what we're seeing today is now that journey towards Rome, these last few chapters of the book, is really Paul in chains going from Jerusalem to Rome, and that, and that Jesus will use Paul as a voice to represent Jesus all the way from Jerusalem into Caesarea, which we're going to see today, all the way into Rome. So for us, if we want to regain that place in the culture, that place in society where, where the church's voice is desired to be heard, we're going to have to change how we say things. We're going to have to change how we act. And really, a starting point is just being less about ourselves and more about Jesus. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this, man to, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, and we have, and have, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one what you have that you have informed me of these things. So Jesus, sovereignly protecting Paul, has his nephew overhear of the plot to kill him, tells Paul, Paul sends him to the tribune, the man that is over a bunch of these soldiers, a man with position and power, a man who's now had an encounter with Paul and actually had a, a pretty good experience with Paul. He's watched as Paul has navigated himself well through some of this. Even in places where Paul wasn't doing well, Paul, again, walking himself back, course correcting, 
engaging in a way that is more honoring to Jesus. And so as we see this, this message gets out, and so it gets to the leader, and the plan is foiled, if you will. Verse 23, and he called two of the centurions, that's the tribune, the tribune called two of the centurions. Centurions are over about 100 guards each. That's where they get the word centurion. So hundreds of people, this tribune is a high-level leader. He calls two of these centurions, and he says, get ready 200 soldiers, so that would be all the men underneath them with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, that's more, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So what I want you to see is when Paul finally kind of regains that voice, when Paul does what God is calling him to do, when, when Paul engages the conversation the way God would have him, Jesus intervenes and says, not only am I going to use you here, but I'm going to use you all the way to Rome, right? Now, Rome kind of being the pinnacle of the planet at that point in time. And say, so I'm going to use you all the way up to literally some of the highest people alive at this time. And then Jesus navigates this plot against Paul and guides him, gives, gives someone to tell, and now they're going to sneak him out in the middle of the night where he is unharmed. Verse 25, and he, meaning the tribune, wrote a letter to this effect. Now, I want to count this tribune's letter as part of the conversation, if you will. So I want, I want to look at Paul's speech. I want to look at the crowd's speech like we did last week. I, I want to look at even this tribune's letter. And we just ask ourselves, if we're going to regain a voice in the culture, what does it need to look like? Or what does it, in fact, in some cases, not need to look like? So it says, in the Tribune wrote a letter of this effect, verse 26, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, if you were here last week, that's not exactly what happened, right? Like, this is the guy who's getting ready to have Paul examined by flogging. In other words, they're going to stretch him out and beat him until he confesses of this. This is the guy who happens to stumble into the conversation as Paul says, would you do this to a Roman citizen? And he, he hits the brakes and it's like, wait a minute, are you actually a Roman citizen? I just thought you were some other guy, right? So here's the tribune. He, he kind of wanders into this conversation. He would clearly have been complicit in the things that took place. But as Paul begins to speak up, he is the one who, who kind of hits pause, right? But it's really out of protecting himself. Now listen to how he writes and begins to tell this story to the governor. He says, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. And when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. So really, everything that this tribune done just absolves himself from what's taking place. Let's look at what he says. So public speech is consumed with speaker, speakers being the hero and anyone else being the problem. Even apologies today. I want to think of anyone who has walked back any statement and said, oh, I was misspeaking or misremembering, not I lied to you and you, got, and you caught me, right? Okay. So, and anyone else being the problem, even apologies today, misspeaking, misremembering, et cetera, are filled with self-insulation, right? Protecting from everyone else. People long for true ownership of wrongdoing. Wouldn't it be kind of cool if just any politician once went, you're right, you caught me, right? Like totally messed up. Like I, I, I totally got caught. I totally lied. I did it. Like it, it would kind of be one of those things where you're just like, man, I almost like them. I don't know what they did. So let's 
put a caveat on that. If they like killed people, let's not say we like them. But right, if they just walked something back honestly once, I think there would be a level of respect given just in the sense that finally somebody owned the fact that they did something wrong and got caught. Instead of this insulated kind of this like, well, oh, well I just you know, somehow made a mistake. This bias of self-protection has to go away. Verse 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their counsel. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. When you get anything, uh, the news or uh, an advertisement, I mean, we're, just, we're going through a, a, a season of where elections are, what, Tuesday, right? So we know this stuff. Are you guys flooded with mail like my house is? Like, vote for this, don't vote for this. Do you just assume that everything you get is super biased? Right? Like you get that little like handout thing where you can read both sides of it and, and everything, uh, even that. But everything you get in the mail, oh, this person supports this or this group of, you know, the Policemen's Association or the Teachers Association support this. And you, everything is just so biased. I think there's just a lack of people just with any kind of genuineness in our culture. I remember walking in here, this is three months ago probably. We were, we were getting construction moving and a lot of stuff had gotten done over a week, and I don't know how it took place so quickly, but we walked in, and the tech booth had been built, and what we caught and what we realized was that that was never permitted, right? And so if you know anything about anything about a city and permits, that's a problem, right? And so as a church, one, we have to be above board with everything. There's no way we can stand up here and say, hey, listen, you have to do the right thing, but then we don't, right? Like, so you've gotta be 100% above board. So we walk in, it's framed and drywalled, no inspection, no permit, no plans. So we walk, literally, we push pause, walk across the street, because the city is right across the street. We go over there, and, uh, which was convenient, as many times as we've had to go over there now. We go over there, and we're like, hey, here's the deal. And I just looked at the planner, and I said, listen, we got out in front of ourselves. Like, clearly, we did something wrong. Like, this is already built and drywalled, and I, we didn't even ask for a permit. So, what do we do to walk this back? So now, I, I will say this, the last 90 days have been filled with headaches. Just our fault, which I'm sure there would have been headaches anyhow, right? Any of you guys that have remodeled a house or done anything, you know how it goes, right? But one thing that went well is we have a really good relationship developing with the city of Cerritos. And where it started was, we just walked in and said, hey, we messed up, right? Like, we're way out in front of this. What do we do? We hit pause. We did nothing else until we could walk through the steps. And it took us a bunch of efforts at getting those steps right and getting them out here. And now we're getting to the place where we had to fix some things, do some things they required. And now we're in a place where this week it should be all done, right? And, and I just, let me say this. There is a good relationship now with the city. They've been incredibly kind they're detail-oriented, so they've made us check every box on everything, but I, they do that with everybody, but they've been incredibly kind to us as we went and we got the permit for the electric, for the HVAC, as we got the permits for the roofing and all the different stuff that we've done, they've been really good with us. But imagine now if they just caught us in something else, we're like, hey, so what's that room, right? 
Just imagine the different relationship with the city that we're in had we acted differently. And it really, the good relationship is fostered out of, hey, we made a mistake, like we messed up, they didn't do anything wrong, we did, and now every step that they've given us, we could complain about each step, but it's our fault, right? It's my fault, at the end of the day, it's my fault. And so as much of a headache as it might be, or as many steps, or as long as this thing has dragged out and we had hoped it had been done before, well, we're in this place where our city is kind to us, we have good relationships, and we're going to be in the city for a long time. Those relationships will be there when that wall or the paint or anything else is long since finished. Does that make sense? And it begins with just us saying, hey, listen, we were totally wrong here. How do we make it right? Starting in humility. Much like Paul did last week, we must begin in a place of humble honesty, even if that means admitting our wrongs. In order to regain a place in the conversation, we must change our approach. Verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded them to be guarded at Herod's Praetorium. So Paul is moved over to Caesarea. He goes before the governor, Felix. Felix asks him a couple questions, agrees to hear his case, and says, listen, when your accusers arrive, we'll have this conversation. Acts 24, verse 1. It says, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So here's the people. Ananias is the high priest. We saw him last week. He is kind of the apex of the Jewish religious leadership. Tertullus is a Jewish order orator. He'll be speaking on behalf of the Jewish religious leadership. He is much like a, an attorney would be in a, re, a representative in front of a, a public gathering like this. And then Felix is a high-level Roman official who will try Paul, who literally has the power. Now, remember, Jewish leaders have wanted to kill Paul, but with, uh, with the exception of murdering him like the plot they just put together, they don't have the authority to kill him legally, to put him to death by a legal judicial system. But Felix does. So Felix is high enough up on the Roman org chart to literally, if his decision comes down, Paul could be put to death depending upon what he has tried for. So verse 2. When he, meaning Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since, though, uh, through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, remember, I, I want to look at just everyone's speech in the conversation. The way everyone is acting in this big dialogue that we get to look onto from the outside. Just kind of measure it against our own or, or where we should be. What is just trying to, I'm mean, trying to tie this to the culture that we're in. And there are so many times where we see people that are so vitriolic on opposite sides and they're accusing people and they dislike people and they're speaking against people. And then all of a sudden, when you get those two people together, they're all super polite and kind. Right? You, right? Like they'll talk trash throughout a debate and then they're super, oh, they're so nice. Oh, they were so friendly and welcoming. You're like, really? Like that's, that's how you're going to act when you were just saying this? That's what Tertullus is doing. The Jewish religious leadership hates the Roman authority. They can't wait to be liberated out from underneath the Roman government. And then Tertullus leads off, and he's like, oh, you've done so good leading us. Like, you're so amazing, right? Now, what is Felix thinking in that moment? 
Right, don't say it out loud, right? We're in church, right? That's exactly what he's thinking. So let me do this. Tertullus, in the New Dictionary, says this, the fulsome flattery of Felix and Tertullus' opening sentences is in accordance with the rhetorical fashion of this period. That's a mouthful. But the rest of his speech is unimpressive. I didn't write that. That was pretty good. Luke makes it clear that Tertullus is trying to cover up a weak case with rhetorical padding. Now, insert anyone else's name today in that. Does it make sense? Like, you're trying to overcome the fact that you've got a weak case by either flattery or just whatever, right? The next slide. We often speak in ways contrary to how we truly think or feel, and everyone is aware of it. Leading with grace and respect can also be done without dishonesty. If we're going to regain our voice in the culture, how about some graceful honesty? And that doesn't mean you have to lead with condescension and and attacks. But I would suggest maybe when we're not together, some grace on that end and, and maybe less dishonest flattery when we are together. What if we just acted differently, right? Verse 4, but to detain you no further, so Tertullus is continuing in front of Felix, but to t- detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the sect of the Nazarenes, clearly Jesus of Nazareth. So, you know, Jesus was raised in a town called Nazareth. He is called a Nazarene. But uh, today, that would be kind of like a city, like Cerritos, a very proud city, a city that's worked really hard to be a good city, looking at a surrounding city that they think is less than the city of Cerritos and saying, oh, they're from that city, right? You know, you live in Huntington Beach, and you're like, oh, well, that's, that's Whittier, Garden, I mean, not Whittier, uh, Westminster, Garden Grove. Like, that condescension of cities that surround them, like, we're a better city, right? Does that make sense? Like, we see that. We're talking about pockets of places where one city is finding themselves better than another city or whatever. And that's really what Tertullus is saying. When he calls him the leader of the sect of Nazarenes, he's not giving him honor as a leader. He's saying, like, that dude's of that place. Right? It's kind of a character attack, if you will. <clears throat> he even tried to profane the temple, verse 6, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out about him everything in which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Uh, so here's what's going on. They're accusing Paul of profaning the temple which if you just remember back a few chapters ago, he never did. They accused him of bringing a non-Jewish person into the temple, but this non-Jewish person never came in. Now, here's, I was talking about this this week, and and there's examples all over the place of things that are true, but every one of them is so politically charged, I'd prefer not to use any of them. But there is things that go on today that people repeat things over and over again that are just not true, but then they're widely accepted as fact. You with me? You all have your example about the other guy who, whatever, right? Here's what's going on with Paul. He's been, it is widely accepted now that he profaned the temple, but he never did, right? It never happened. He never took a non-Jewish man into the temple. In fact, what Paul's going to say is, listen, I'm currently under a vow. Like I just went and did the whole Nazarite vow thing just to kind of show my Jewishness, if you will. But this thing, this accusation about Paul has been repeated so many times that people are now accepting it as true. 
And that's what happens in our culture today. Things get repeated over and over again, even though they're not true. And now this thing that's false becomes a fact that everybody is throwing around. We need a relentless honesty. What if rather than perpetuating false statements, we correct things that might even go against our own personal narrative? Truth is more important than positions, and regaining our voice requires relentless honesty. What if we were just to admit that one thing about that opposing political figure or the person you dislike or disagree with? What if you were just to say, you know what? Yeah, that's not true. I still disagree with this person. I still do this, or I'm, I'm still here, but that's not a way I'm going to do this. I'd rather be honest than try and further my own narrative. Wouldn't you just fall out of your couch if someone on TV did that? Right? It's like, they just, you'd be backing up, right? Did they really just say that's not true? Did they really like, defend the person they disagree with? That would be amazing to me, right? Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they have called a sect, that's what they called Christianity then, the way, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God with which these men themselves accept, accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul just summarizes his personal account. And what's different about this time as Paul begins to speak is he's just not attacking anyone else. He's just giving the truth about himself, right? He's taking a different tone, right? Paul doesn't attack or slander his accusers. He simply states his case. If we can rise above the current level of dialogue, we'll have a unique voice in the conversation. How many times do we listen to the conversation out there and really it's all about the, it's not a platform of for something, it's a platform about against someone else. Does that make sense? Like right now, the biggest things out there being said are that the other person or the other party or the other side of the conversation or the other news channel or the other whatever is wrong. And Paul leaves that conversation, just says, let me tell you about me. Let me just give you the truth about me. Verse 16, Paul says this, and I highlighted this earlier. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul sees himself as needing to have a clear conscience between him and the other human beings around him, and yet rise to a level where he has a clear conscience before God, his creator, as well. Now, here's what, where I think that is, is uh, something we need to understand. It feels like when we get into a conflict of any kind, whether it be on social media or in person or whatever, it, it, we get this sense of the other person is wrong, therefore we're justified to do whatever it is we're doing or say whatever it is we're saying or say it in the way that we are saying it. And so we justify our wrong, our wrong behaviors based on the fact the other person is wrong. Now, even just saying that out loud, you hear that and you're like, yeah, that's not good, right? But imagine no matter what is going on in your life, you still have to stand before God. Your speech is still accountable to God. Your actions and your attitude and your heart are still accountable before God. Who knows your heart? And that's what Paul is saying is, listen, he, he says, I always take pains. Like, this isn't easy. It's hard to do. I take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So our conscience before God, 
It is easy to feel you have a clear conscience towards someone opposing you in today's antagonistic times, but the calling of every Christ follower is to have a clear conscience before God. To have a clear conscience before God in everything that you say and do. Clearly, we're going to fall short of that, right? Yeah? No, just me? Okay. Clearly, we're going to, call, we're going to fall short of that. And that's where repentance takes place. That's where, like, we saw Paul walk it back last week. Verse 20, 17, excuse me. Now, after several years, I came bringing alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you making an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men, them, these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found. And when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out was standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So Paul says, here's the reason. Here's why I'm here. At the end of it all, it's because I said that there's a man who lived and died and rose again. That's why I'm here. And that this very man, a teacher, a rabbi, a Jewish leader, who would go from town to town and proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people and performing miracles, I say, then the Jewish leadership executed him, and then he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, the religious leadership wants to squash this message because by any, but God raised him from the dead, clearly they missed the mark on killing him. He says, and so I'm proclaiming this Jesus who is alive. I'm proclaiming this Jesus who lived and died and rose again. And he did so that we could have new life. That we could be forgiven in the places where we're flawed. That we could, we could be transformed in the places where we're wrong. That we could be different. In our culture today, it's the, it's the Jesus that resurrected from the grave empowers us to live differently so we can be a different voice in the culture. So that we can have a different place in our society, that we can live in a different way, that we could look differently and not just look like everyone else. And that our message would not just be a this against that, but we would rise above that, that we would have a message that is eternal, that we could be a people that actually make an impact through humility and honesty, compassion, and yet still find ways to be truthful and not just concede to the culture. It's the resurrection that enables this. And Paul says, that's why I'm on trial. Because there's a man who lived and died and rose again. And because of that, I have a different place, a different way to speak, and a different goal in mind. Verse 22, but Felix, having an accurate knowledge of the way. So Felix, not a Christian, but understands Christianity, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. And none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear this. Felix is a high-level Roman official who is married to a Jewish woman who is now hearing this case about this Jewish religious leader who has turned and is reshaping his faith. And he's following this man, Jesus. And now there's this charge being brought against him by the Jewish people that, that, that if their charge is correct or if they get their way, Paul will be sentenced to death. But here's how the conversation is different. It, it comes all the way up until in being heard by Felix. And Felix says, listen, when all the accusers get here, we'll settle this thing. So everybody go their own way for a little while. And then Felix calls his wife in at some point and invites Paul in to share with him and his wife more about Jesus. 
Paul is invited back by a high-level leader and his wife to share more about Jesus. Don't we want something like that? Don't we want to be invited? We want to be invited into our next-door neighbor's life at that level, right? We want to be invited into the conversation. Speech season with salt. We looked at a verse last week, uses this language, and we just talked about this. Paul speaks in such a way that he's invited to come back and share more about Jesus with Felix and his wife. Our speech should make others thirsty to hear more about Jesus, not just about our cause in life. We'll close with this. And as he reads in verse 25, about righteousness with self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Paul literally, as he presses into the gospel, I'm sure says some things that Felix is uncomfortable with. But the difference is he says them in such a way where Felix is inviting him to speak. Let the gospel be the offense, not the way you say it. Let the gospel be the one that says all humanity is flawed and sinful, and that means you and I are sinful. Let the the gospel present that. Let it not be us that's offensive. Verse 26, and it says, at the same time, Felix meaning, at the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years go by. And yes, Felix has some other things. He really hopes to be bribed. He hopes that Paul will go, hey, man, we've got money. Can you just let us out? And he doesn't. But he does keep inviting him back. And the message keeps going forward. And I'll close with this. Paul is invited to speak. Paul's invited to share Jesus before powerful people. If we transform our speech and actions, we too could speak into things that matter in our world. If we're unwilling to change, we will continue to be lost in the noise. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that everything that comes out of our mouths, and I I realize that I'm praying for something that we're going to fall short of, but I pray that everything that comes out of our mouths would be, as your word says, seasoned with salt. In other words, Lord, that everything we say would make people thirsty to know you, thirsty to hear your voice, thirsty to, to understand you. And let's just admit, Jesus, we, we, we're not that. In fact, we get caught up in the social conversation in a way that is just like everyone else around us. We devolve in a name-calling and character assassination and perpetuating things that are not true without knowing, sometimes even with knowing, with knowledge that they're not true. Jesus, help us to be different. You've come and entered into human history so that we don't remain the same. You've come and lived and died and rose again that we might be transformed. You came with a message of love and a message of transformation. You call each one of us to respond. Help us, Lord, as the world needs a new voice. It needs a a voice that that is different and distinct, that's kind and loving and yet filled with truth, that doesn't sacrifice grace for truth or truth for grace. Help us to be that voice, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.